Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast, where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and we have reached that point in the year when we all focus on traditions at work and at home. At home, we gather with family and friends around food and fellowship. At work, we gather around crystal balls to stare intently into the middle distance to come up with what we think will happen in the next year. Part of that is a budget exercise, but part of it is looking at the past to see what the future holds for trends. In our case at the ITRC, trends mean identity crimes, privacy issues, and data protections. And so, we wrap our fourth season of The Fraudian Slip with our traditional predictions podcast. Here to help us prognosticate is ITRC board member James Rotolo, who is also a fraud expert at the SAS Institute, a leading provider of anti-fraud solutions, and the ITRC CEO, Eva Velasquez. Thank you for joining us, Eva. Pleasure to be here, as always, James. And thank you to James for joining us. Thank you for having me. And at some point, the whole James thing will become confusing, but we're not going to worry about it right now. Uh, and, and before we gaze into the future, I do want to blow the dust off of our predictions from last year just to see how we did at our crystal ball gazing. You know, a lot of time you have these big prediction lists and you never really find out what happened. So we're going to talk about what happened. So we're not going to do all of them, but we're going to do a couple of them. So um, I'm going to throw this one first to Eva to weigh in. And that was our prediction was that romance scams will continue to morph into relationship scams. And I think that's pretty much spot on. Um, But what do you think? I think it depends on how you want to look at things. Um, You could either say it's kind of flat and it stayed the same or uh, that, really we're seeing a lot more the the relationship scams and for people to understand the difference romance scam obviously there's a romantic hook someone is purporting to be the love of your life and then scamming you and with the relationship scams that romance component doesn't necessarily have to be present it's just some kind of connection friendship uh common interests common uh, background, you know, we're both immigrants, or we both speak this other language and want to connect with our roots, or or whatever it is. And I was really, really seeing that pick up a lot uh, last year, and now I'm seeing it just it, it's still absolutely present. But man, we're still seeing a lot of the romance scams with the romantic hook happening. We also saw a lot more money. Oh. Well, lost in these oh my gosh scams. it's it's mind-boggling to me as someone in this space who hears from the victims all of the time we talk about these cases in our contact center and whereas we used to draw in our breath in shock when someone would say uh they lost you know in the high tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands now we're talking to people who are losing in the millions their entire life savings. Uh, But those aren't necessarily coming from the romance scam piece, at least the ones that that we're seeing. Those are more of the imposter scams. Those ones are born out of fear, not love. Mr. Otolo, what are you seeing in this space? Yeah, I think uh, we see in the world of financial services, just the continued growth of scams overall. 
And we like to, uh, to differentiate us between a scam and a fraud uh, in the world of financial transactions and, and some of the, uh, the regulatory coverage that consumers have. Uh, you're often protected from frauds. Uh, but less so from scams. And in a scam, uh, you are um, tricked into making an authorized transfer. So in these scam scenarios that Eva is referring to, whether they be romance scams or business scams, uh, you develop a relationship with an individual and that individual then convinces you to send them money. And you think it's for a legitimate purpose, but um, in most cases, you know, that obviously is, uh, is for a nefarious purpose. And the really challenging part for the banks in this scenario is because you are an authorized user logging into your own account and electing to transfer the funds, it can be very challenging to identify those as, uh, as frauds, right? Or, or as scenarios where the consumer is being taken advantage of. And so that becomes, uh, that becomes a challenge and, and we continue to see a dramatic growth in scam activity. So to Eva's point, I don't know if we can say for certain that things have evolved from, uh, you know, from uh, romance uh, to, to more relationships uh, overall, but we are certainly continuing to see a steady increase in the various types of scam activity. Yeah, this is one of those times when you don't really want to be right. Uh, okay, the other one that we're going to focus on from last year, uh, our prediction, that identity criminals will move to exploit the technology gap between people who adopt passkey and other pets, passwordless tech, and those who can't or won't make the shift. Yeah, I'm going to go with that one's too soon to tell if that actually happened because the technology didn't emerge as fast as we thought. What do you think, Mr. Otolo? I agree. I, I think the potential is certainly there, and I think we're going to see increasing adoption going forward. But uh, really kind of got a late start in the year. And, you know, although there's some major support for pass keys from large vendors like Apple and Google and, and the like, uh, and I think that's what's going to help drive adoption in the future. Um, I, I do think it's still too early to tell. And, and people are creatures of habit and they've been using and, and yep. forced to use passwords for a long, long time. And so I do think they're going to have a little more staying power than, uh, than we would like, uh, unfortunately, but, uh, but I think we will get there. James Rotolo, I'm shocked that you would think scammers would exploit a new vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, well, I tend to be a little skeptical in, in my line of work. Here we go. Eva, your prediction was that the emotional toll of identity crimes will continue to increase and assistance providers will struggle to meet the emotional recovery of victims. So what makes you think that? Okay, first, I am going to channel my great uh, prognosticator. What was the uh, the Johnny Carson one? The great... Oh, Karnak the Great. The Great. I am Karnak the Great for this one. Um, and I don't mean to make light of such a serious topic, but this is the Predictions Podcast. Um, I The reason I feel that way is because we're so far behind and we continue to be far behind in comprehensive support for victims. And I think that we've made a fair amount of progress in uh, trying to provide recovery services to victims. The, the nuts and bolts of here is how you recover your identity when it's been misused. And while we don't have enough uniform processes, we are at least moving in the right direction. There's a lot of conversations about how we can do better. How do we make it um, less impactful from a time standpoint, 
uh, for victims to recover, not have to call as many places. There's lots of discussions about uniform um, reporting and one-stop shops, and that's all great news. However, what's completely absent from those conversations is how can we support people emotionally? How can we address the trauma that these folks are experiencing? And I'm not advocating for um, uh, uh, all recovery specialists to become therapists and to be able to heal the trauma. Of course, we have to do this in such a way that it doesn't do any harm, but we don't have access to those specialists. It, the, the programs either don't exist or they are not funded by a lot of the dollars that are allocated for crimes of victims, particularly the VOCA Act. Um, if you look at how what types of services are provided to violent crime victims, things like peer support and therapy and, and emotional support, things of that nature are covered for that population. They are not for this population. They simply are not. And while I don't want to make an argument that we should take any services away from a violent crime victim, I am simply saying that the need exists and we have got to figure some some things out in order to provide that to the people that need it, which is a lot of them. And, uh, you know, the few peer support programs that I know of have waiting lists that are very, very long. So even the people who are able to find these resources, they get a referral from us, they have to wait and wait um, to even get into one of these programs because the demand is so high. We just, we just need more. And I'm not seeing this, uh, this conversation. I feel like I'm the only one talking about this, honestly. So I'm not seeing this conversation being had in the places and the spaces where it needs to occur in order to make this happen. Mr. Rotolo, you have a thought? I do. And, you know, of all the wonderful research that the Identity Theft Resource Center does, this is the one that always scares me the most when we see these metrics around the number of, of people that have contemplated suicide as a result of their victimization or the ones that are suffering, you know, severe uh, mental or emotional distress as a result of the scenario. And I agree, Eve, I don't think we collectively are talking about this enough uh, in our society. And I think as the, the scam rate continues to increase, right, and the, the fraud activity continues to grow year over year, uh, I think what I'm seeing is there are more and more people who feel like they uh, are not going to be victimized or feel like they would know if it was a scam, and more and more of those people are falling victim. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's a, by nature of the fact that these scams are becoming uh, more mature, more accurate. And we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about that and, and why that's happening in a few minutes. But I think that is what we are seeing. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to really tell what's, what's true, what's legitimate, and, and what might be, uh, might be a fraud scenario. You sort of opened the door. And, you know, this is uh, 2023, so you can't have a conversation about the present or the future without mentioning generative AI, because that's apparently written down as a law somewhere. Uh, but we do know that AI is already improving the quality of scam, uh, whether that's a phishing scam or some other type of um, criminal attack. 
what are, what are you thinking when it comes to AI? Cause that's your prediction. Yeah, I think, well, for the two people listening that uh, haven't heard about AI, uh, that stands for artificial intelligence, right? And so for, uh, in this case, we're talking about generative AI, which is uh, artificial intelligence that can generate new content that didn't exist before. And so that's why there's been so much excitement around this technology is because it's, you know, that type of, uh, of capability has only recently become widely available. And uh, it, it works quite well, as it turns out. Now, it has some flaws, uh, for sure, and, and we're still getting our arms around that. But there's a lot of hype around AI, for sure. And you know, I think some of the risks that are being discussed as it relates to frauds and scams may be a little bit overblown uh, because of that hype. But where there's smoke, there's fire. And so what we are seeing is the criminals are already using this technology to improve the quality uh, of, of their frauds and scams. So a simple example uh, is the quality of a phishing email, right? You know, years ago, we used to see lots of uh, grammatical errors and clearly people, uh, you know, who uh, were, were used to having English as a second language, perhaps struggling with the right terminology or uh, punctuation and things like that in those messages. Using um, some generative AI to write that content, we are seeing really, really high quality versions of those types of phishing messages. And so what we're expecting and what we're starting to see is an uptick in the success rate that they're having in uh, in using those types of phishing lures, as we call them. And so that's resulting in an uptick in account takeovers, uh, an uptick in potentially driving additional breach activity, right? Which is uh, scary to think about since we're already uh, near record highs. And so we're concerned about account takeovers. We're concerned about uh, all those types of frauds that can be driven by, um, by, by those types of methods that I mentioned. So the reality is that AI is really just an accelerator, right? Businesses are excited about it because it can improve their efficiency. It can help them automate processes. It can, it can do things much more efficiently. Bad guys are excited about it for the exact same reasons, Right. It's going to help them accelerate the work that they do, which is scamming and defrauding other people. And so, you know, that rising tide is lifting all boats. Uh, in many cases, that's a good thing uh, for business. But in other cases, we're going to see an increase in the, uh, the types and the rates of fraud activity. You know, I always say that technology is agnostic. Users are not. So this is a classic example of what can be used for good can also be used for bad. Eva, I know you have thoughts about this. I, I do. And um, to, I just want to clarify a point that, that James made. And when he said he thinks some of the, the hype is overblown, I agree with you. But for our, for our listeners, where I think that's overblown is people keep asking questions, particularly about things like deep fakes and voice cloning, thinking that how can I avoid having someone do that to me, you know, make a deep fake video of me or voice cloning. And that's where I think it's overblown. They're not the target, really. Um, it's not scalable. And could it happen? Sure. Has it happened? Sure. Um, but the bigger issue for people is going to be the, you know, the misinformation piece, the deep fakes of a trusted celebrity doing a, a charity. Hey, you know, it's me. I, oh, I'm not even going to say a celebrity name. 
but it's, you know, it's me insert someone, you know, and follow here. And I'm raising money for the ASPCA. Won't you give? And, and it is in fact, not that celebrity. It is just a, a scammer that has a very convincing uh, deep fake video or voice clone. That's to me, that's the, one of the big pieces of confusion. Um, so I think that's the only place where it really is overblown. I'm deeply concerned about how this is going to just really charge the, it's such a, an amazing tool for us, but think about it's an amazing tool for the bad actors as well. And to the earlier point that was made, when don't the scammers leverage those tools that are out there? When do they not use them to the best of their ability? They are a crafty lot. A lot. <laughs> um, okay, uh, my turn, and I'm going to turn us a little bit a, a little bit different direction where we're not so much focused on the bad guys, um, just so they don't get all the airtime. Um, or maybe it's a different set of bad guys. I don't know. You decide. Um, my prediction, more states will adopt comprehensive privacy laws and security laws, and Congress will not. So continuing their, their unbroken street of successfully not passing a comprehensive privacy law since 2005, we're going to continue it into 2024. Um, but the states are stepping in. We, we now have 11 states that have comprehensive privacy laws that include data protection and cybersecurity. Uh, 10 of those states do, state laws do. One of them does not. Um, and California continues to pass even additional laws that give individuals, um, they use the very dry term data subject. But that's, 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 a, that's a fancy word or term for people. So it gives people more uh, access and control over how their information is collected, it's used, how it's stored, um, and, you know, how for how long. So a lot more control than people have had historically. Um, but Congress continues to resist making anything uniform. So we're winding up with, a, with the same thing we do with data breach laws, which is this patchwork quilt of 50 plus different laws because the District of Columbia and the territories also have their own laws in this respect. So the it's not that the bad guys themselves are finding ways around these laws because they are they don't respect them. But what happens with data breaches and what will happen with privacy is you'll wind up um, having different rights and different remedies depending upon where you live. And that's kind of fundamentally unfair uh, because where you live shouldn't have any effect on what you can, what you can do to help yourself and protect yourself from uh, either uh, the potential of an identity crime or when a breach occurs, what remedies are available to you. And that is the case we have today. So I think we'll see more States. I don't, I, I'm not sure we'll reach critical mass. That's, it's it's uh, it's an election year, so most of the state legislatures are only going to have very short sessions. Um, but I think coming into 2025, we'll see a lot more states. But we're we're on a much faster path to get to 50 states having their own laws than we were with data breaches that took from 2005 to 2018 to get all all the 
puzzle pieces of the map filled in. You beat me to it, James. Oh, I'm sorry. The question. <laughs> no, the question that I had for you is, would you be making the same prediction if it wasn't an election year next year? How much do you think that's impacting your prediction? A lot I, or a little? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it is a factor. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now, when it comes to Congress, it's, it's, it's totally, totally about the election. Um, you know, the, the, we've been dealing with the fact that next year is the election year. This year, there has not been a single hearing on comprehensive privacy legislation in this Congress, and there won't be next year either, in all likelihood. And even if there is a hearing, it will be a show hearing, just to say that they had one. Um, there, we ended the last Congress with an actual workable privacy, uh, it was a bipartisan bill, workable privacy, uh, comprehensive privacy law draft, but because we passed uh, a, 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 the last election, and we have a new Congress, you know, all that died, and you have to start all over again. And you're starting over with new players and new people in, in committee roles and leadership roles. So you, you really are starting from scratch every two years on this topic. And so I think it's going to be 2025 before we realistically have a chance. And that's assuming that Congress really has the, the desire to do it. The We've got ample evidence of why we need it. And... We've got some, these state laws are, are actually, you know, they're very good. They need to address the, the issue of data breaches, but they're going to have an effect longer term on the kinds of breaches that occur because of a lack of cybersecurity or a lack of attention on cybersecurity, because they all require, except for one state, an annual form of, a, of an audit. And mm-hmm. so it's, it gives an organization a chance to, to look at their their practices and their procedures every year, and then they have to report that to a government agency that may go, that's not good enough, and so they want to avoid that. We're also we're seeing uh, now federal agencies also do more with their regulatory power. We just in 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 uh, December, just in fact, uh, when this is airing. Uh, in just a couple of days after this podcast airs, the Securities and Exchange Commission will begin enforcing a new law that basically says publicly traded companies have to report within four days any cyber attack or data breach that is material. Don't need to go into what materiality means and stuff like that, but it's a, it's a very different approach and it's a much faster timeline. And those are all going to be public documents. And if a company fails to do so, that opens up a whole range of enforcement actions that the Securities and Exchange Commission can take against publicly traded companies. So it's going to be interesting to see if that regulatory approach um, has an effect of people improving their cybersecurity and and that diminishing the number of data breaches. Okay, I'll be quiet now. It's your turn. (laughs) (laughs) You were like, all right, and and James drops the mic. Well, I'm encouraged um, and hopeful because of the number of states that have uh, acknowledged how important this is and taken steps to to put legislation in place. Um, but to your point, I'm I'm also uh, frustrated, James, because of that patchwork quilt that exists, and a lot of the commercial enterprises that I work with, um, you know, are challenged in trying to comply with uh, the, the myriad 
laws and regulations that are out there and, and it makes it um, inefficient and costly uh, to try to comply with those when uh, when they're different. So um, so agree that, you know, there's some more opportunity here, but we're probably not going to see it for uh, for the next couple of years. Yeah. And the bottom line is it's at the end of the day, it's the consumers that are impacted. The that patchwork quilt is unfair to them that just by you know, virtue of the fact that you live in a certain state, you don't have robust privacy rights afforded to you. So we definitely want to see this. And I know the, I know the argument is we don't want to dilute um, the stronger state laws. And I, and I understand that. However, we have to start somewhere and to have robust coverage in one state and zero in another is just, it really is not fair to the end users at the end of the day. Well, these types of uh, frauds, scams, breaches, um, cyber events really have no respect for the jurisdictional nature of our uh, our legislative and governance programs here, right? So um, most of the activity that we're talking about is cross-border, whether that's cross states or, or across countries. And so unfortunately, our legal system is, uh, is still struggling to catch up. And I think we're going to see continue to see that for some time. Well, my friends, we've gazed into the future. We have come up with some predictions. We'll have to gather here again this same time next year and see how we did. So thank you. Have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see everybody again next year. Mr. Atolo, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me, James. And Eva, as always. Thank you. <laughs> In the immortal words of the great Karnak, what do you call an exploding sheep? I don't know. What do you call an exploding sheep? Sisboomba. Okay. <laughs> Not even a laugh. Not even a laugh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's actually from the show. Oh, got a great laugh back in the it was a, uh There was a cringe. You just couldn't it see it. Yeah, yeah. This is not a visual podcast. But, but, <laughs> but thank you, because you know I do love a good pun, and I'm not, I don't oh. want to be sheepish about it. Oh, Lord. We're editing oh. this out. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. We're not. But, so we'll be back next year. Bad puns aside, this is our last podcast for 2023. Join us in January for Season 5 of The Fraudian Slip and our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown. From all of us at the Identity Theft Resource Center, we wish you and your loved ones a happy and healthy holiday season and a prosperous and secure new year. Until next year, thanks for listening.